Hello. Well, it's been a while since we last had one of Phil's director retrospectives. In fact, the last time we spoke to Phil, a.k.a. Phil the Bear on this, it was about Quentin Tarantino, way back in episode 56. Well, Phil's back with a new one, and it is one of the most successful directors working today, Christopher Nolan. Phil will be joining us to talk about this and giving a break to TV for the evening. We're also joined by Declan for this discussion. Guys, welcome on board again. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me again. Thanks, guys. And, of course, we've got Graham and Neil, but Neil's gone very quiet and shy. That's all right. I'm here. Okay. <laughs> He's drinking wine. Yeah, I'm drinking oh, wine, yeah, so yeah. leave me alone. Is that the third bottle today, Neil? Second, uh, yeah. And we're recording this at 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gin on the okay. cornflakes is the problem. No. That's the one. Anybody listening in for us to talk about Tenant, I'm afraid, will be very disappointed. While some of us have seen it, the majority, in fact, have not. It will not be featured on this retrospective today. However, there will be a very high-level reference to it later on, as you'll see. So let's start with the most important question. Phil, where can people find your fascinating article on Christopher Nolan? Um, yeah, they can find it on my website, which is philthebearblog.wordpress.com. If you go to the features section, you can see my Christopher Nolan piece, as long as, as well as uh, I've done Tarantino, Wes Anderson, Coen Brothers, and Ridley Scott. Excellent. So, first question, what first attracted you to the highly successful, super talented Christopher Nolan? <laughs> um, yeah, well, obviously, I do really like all of his films, but there was kind of a sort of three main reasons. So, firstly, I was really excited to, to see Tenet, and it was it was I was furloughed, it was locked down, was it ever going to get released? So I thought I'd jump on and, and watch all of these films and do an article. And obviously, I think everyone on the web's pretty much done one in the last few weeks as well. The other sort of two reasons were, I'd never seen um, his original, uh, his first film the, uh, called Following. I'd never watched the Batman films with my son. And my son was is sort of nine and a half at the moment. And I figured he's old enough now to, to watch the Batman films. And I have to say, it's one of the greatest experiences I've had as a sort of father-son film watching is we watched the Batman trilogy. I think we did it over the course of a week. And it was just really, really enjoyable. Sort of one of those sort of father-son experiences. And he loved it. So we know you're a big fan, but what about everybody else? Deck, are you? Oh, yeah, massive fan. I mean, Phil and I tend to have the same taste in films anyway. But, um, yeah, Christopher Nolan's up there as one of my favourite. It's an intelligent filmmaker. He doesn't dumb down his films. That's what I love about it. And I went through a similar thing that Phil did, but obviously a few years ago I watched them with my son as well. Obviously I've gone on to watch um, Interstellar and Inception with my son as well. We rewatched it because I knew this was coming up. We rewatched um, Inception again uh, the other night, So, and we both still love it. Neil, would you ever watch an intelligent filmmaker like Christopher Nolan? <laughs> I've watched most of them, Jeff. Goodness gracious. Are you a fan? Yeah, we are. Yeah. You can't not be, really. I mean, it's it's fantastic stuff, isn't it? But he's, yeah, absolute fan. Great. Graham, need I ask? Yeah, yeah, total fanboy. He can't do anything wrong by me. Anybody who just drops you into the middle of a film... And you think, what the hell's going on here? I, who are these people? What? What? I just love that. Having to pick it up as you go along and knowing that the director trusts you enough to think, 
the people who are watching this are intelligent enough. I don't have to do a big, long explanation mm. at the start. You, They're going to get it. Now, Phil, when we spoke about Quentin Tarantino last, and obviously we're going to go into the filmography of Chris Nolan in a minute, but I just want a general question to start off with, and I want to go back to that Quentin Tarantino. I said he was more an intellectual rather than an emotional filmmaker, and I doubled down on that for Chris Nolan. I think he is a great filmmaker, very technical, but he can't convey emotion. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? I do disagree, but I think that it's an argument that, you know, you could definitely make that argument and there would be pros and cons to it. I do think that all of his films deal deal with and explore human emotion to some extent. He explores, you know, our memory, guilt and love. He does do that in really intricately put together films. And I think that, you know, you could look at Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and say, that's a film about human emotion, but you could argue that it's cold and clinical. And you could uh, probably, and, and you could probably put the same, you know, veneer over Nolan's films. But and I know we will come to this later because we do have one strong kind of disagreement on one of his films. Mm-hmm. But for me, his most emotional film is about love transcending time and space. And I don't think it can get bigger than that when you're talking about human emotion. I understand the argument. I just think that he comes across that in a slightly different way than the tearjerkers, you know, that he could do. Neil, would you agree or disagree on the emotion that uh, Chris Nolan shows in his films? Well, I get emotional about them sometimes. I mean, it's, yeah, I I think so, yeah. I I agree with Phil, yeah. It is emotional and he can do it. I, I think sometimes he tries so hard to do something really, 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 really clever. People like Jeff don't think that he manages emotions. But, no, I, I disagree with you, Jeff, as a matter of... Uh, yeah, it's a matter of <laughs> course, really. A matter of course, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Graham, have you, and I know that you'll disagree with me before you even ask Oh, the absolutely, question. yeah. I, so I so think give me he... an example where he shows emotion in a film then. Well, I, I think if you look at the, the last one I watched, The Prestige, I mean, this is about revenge and it's about people who are just totally focused and driven and they don't care about the people around them really, so they just cast them aside as... And I just thought the emotional level in that was fantastic. The emotional effect in Dunkirk is off the chart. Uh, when what you part see was that it, in? Where did I miss that? When, when people are drowning and, and they're trying to save one another, the guy trying to get out of the Spitfire and the, the other guys in the boat are trying to rescue him. And I just thought that was very, very intense. And you got the emotion that the people were going through. I loved all of that generalization then on this emotion deck i know what you mean jeff you don't need a tissue you don't need to ball your eyes out when you go and see a christopher nolan film but there is still a lot of emotion in there they're not ramping it up like they do in other films it's not like the notebook or anything where you they ramp it right up and you're sobbing into your handkerchief at the end and trying to keep quiet because you're in the cinema but it's is they're not those type of films so i agree with you on that sense but there's an awful lot of emotion there's a lot of grief there's a lot of things about fatherhood so yeah it's all it's all tied in there Personally, I, I think he would sacrifice any emotion to get a better shot. But I think we'll reserve that for Interstellar. And I think that'll be part two of this discussion. But I question solely for Phil, because he is the only person that's seen this. 
So after Christopher Nolan started out making shorts, he made his first feature following in 1998. Now, I don't think anybody but you's seen this. So what's it about, Phil? And is it any good? Is it any good? Yes and no. I mean, it's it's easily his worst film, but worse is kind of a what's the word i mean well when you look at all of his other films say it's worse doesn't necessarily mean much because his other it's a relative phrase yeah that's what i'm looking for yeah um it's it's a weird one so it's only 69 minutes long it's really short it comes across at times a bit like a drama school project the two lead actors are both in their very first film and as far as i could tell from my research one of them's never appeared in a film since there's very little in the way of a score or music. And sometimes it feels like, you know, it's awkward because you've got two kind of amateur actors talking in a scene. There's no music to kind of direct feelings or emotion, which is something that he definitely does do. And I know we're going to talk about Hans Zimmer a bit later on as well. It's one of those films where you can see the kernel and the makings of that talent you don't have to rush out and watch it, I don't think. It's one of those ones where it will complete your understanding of him and where he's come from, but you're not going to sort of go, that's better than X, Y, or Z, and, I, and I'd watch it many, many times. In terms of a plot, it's very much points out Nolan's fascination of how he edits time. So the idea is is um, there's a, a guy who, for some reason... He's unemployed and he just decides to follow people around, hence it's called following. And one of those people kind of realises that it's happening and he approaches him and he's a thief. And they come into like this conversation about you can just steal some stuff and they can work together, etc. And one of them, by the way, is called Cobb, which obviously reused that name in Inception. And what he does is rather than tell the story in a linear way, is he just has flash forwards and flashbacks and he does that typical Nolan thing where you can tell whether it's in the future or the past based on you know what they're wearing or or you know a particular you know thing that's happening in that scene it's a pretty interesting film noir that feels a bit amateurish at times it's one of those ones that really marks a talent but you're not going to say it's better than any of his other features would you recommend everybody here to see it yeah, I mean, given this audience and the fact that, you know, we're all interested in film, it's only 69 minutes of your time. Uh, finding it is hard. Um, I just had to buy it on DVD. <laughs> so. Solid sort of media thing, Graham. No, no idea what you're on about. I didn't think so. Okay. But it was his next film that was essentially his calling card to the world. Memento, a film that deals with, what's it called? Retrograde amnesia. Retrograde amnesia. Since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. If we talk for too long, I'll forget how we started. Next time I see you, I'm not going to remember this conversation. What's the last thing that you do remember? My wife. That's sweet. Dying. What is unusual about Memento is it plays in reverse, and uh, something I learned to my cost, never watch it when you're drinking. <laughs> Is that because you couldn't follow it? Or? I couldn't follow it to start off. I had to rewatch half of it again when I sobered up. It is a great film, but I did have to sober up to fully understand it. Phil, I understand this was the first Nolan film you watched. And 
in fact, it's probably the same for everybody on this uh, yeah. in this discussion. Yeah, and I had to go very much out of my way. So I worked at the cinema when this film came out. It was basically, you know, you read Empire magazine and all those sort of things, and you hear about this amazing little film that's got really good reviews. And my cinema wasn't even showing it. I had to drive 30 miles to a different cinema to, to watch it. I loved it then. I love it now. As with a lot of his films, um, it's one of those things that you watch it and every time you watch it, because you understand what is happening, you will notice little things and kind of, you know, how they join together and merge. And and one of the things when I rewatched it that I really loved is you've got the, the black and white sequences and the colour sequences. And at the beginning of the film, you see this Polaroid photo coming into focus or disappearing out of focus. I can't remember which way around it is. But at the at the end of the film, those black and white sequences and colour sequences merge together and you see the colour from the black and white merge into the, into the colour sequence. I just loved that, the way that it comes together. The story suddenly makes sense. Again, I've got this on DVD and I even mentioned this in, in my article. This is when DVD boxes were like an art form in themselves. The, the DVD that I have is designed as though it's his patient notes at the mental facility that he was at. The menus are like really hard to navigate. You actually have in the DVD like some notes on how to navigate the menus because it doesn't just simply have play or anything like that. It has like Rorschach tests where you've got to select an option and things like that. And there's a, a secret thing that you can navigate to which will play the film in sequence in in chronological order have you ever watched it that way i never got all the way through i started to watch it that way and i think it completely takes away the mystery of the film it's a really odd thing but actually the structure of the film i think really really makes it work and the other thing i was going to say is this is two years after he made following and if you guys do go and watch following the difference the way that he goes from something that is ridiculously low budget amateur actors not much in the way of a score to what i think is a fully realized absolutely brilliant film i can only imagine how how much different that set would have been for him from going you know from doing it on the fly in you know his parents houses and friends houses to having a full set with you know, the likes of Guy Pearce and Joe Pantoliano, et cetera, on the set. Must have been such a big deal, and he's absolutely nails it. Graham, what aspects of it stood out for you then? As Phil's already mentioned, the colour palette is just incredible. And and it's the shock moments. So you think you get part way through the film, and you think, oh, I've got this. Ha-ha, I think I understand this. And then he just throws your completely curved ball I'm not going to spoil it, but there are a number of points in the film where you go, what? What the hell? And didn't see them coming. And then it's, again, it's another three-minute reset or five-minute reset. And you think, no, no, hang on. Let's go back to that bit. Oh, no, I have to pay attention to this bit because this bit's more. Oh, it's just a masterclass in building up tension, building up suspense, and keeping you on the edge of your seat. And you're trying to unravel this puzzle at the same time. Most of what's did a dozen times, and I just think it's great. Okay. Well, definitely a fan then. Dan, oh, are yeah. you a fan? 
Oh yeah, definitely. This was this this would be in my top half of his top ten if he's sort of I mean it'd definitely be in the top five. Um yeah, this is one that was a wake up call for all of us, I think. And it's interesting the listening to you guys just talking then. Um because yes, he's he's very stylistic and, and we all love his themes and his suspense and the intelligence of movies. It's weird because he's I presume because his films don't tend to win acting Oscars or anything like that, it, it gets overlooked. But when you look through, you know, when you see in front of you the list of films and the cast and you think, well, actually, they, they've all had really good performances. There's not really a weak performance in there. He's obviously not a director that just does style. He obviously looks after his cast as well. And um, he does and, it with really large casts as well, doesn't he? He's, he's usually yeah, got a yeah. big cast. They're all giving really good performances. Yeah, so I hadn't really thought of that until you, listening to you guys talking about it then and, and thinking of all the other films we're going to talk about and thinking, yeah, he, he does. So, that, But as you say, I think there'll be a theme that will keep coming up in that we, I think the reason we all love these films is you can watch them over and over again. I mean, I've got a lot of them on DVD. I'm sure most of the other people uh, of us here tonight have got a lot of them on DVD because we like to watch them because you see things, as you say, different things every time. To me, that's a sign of a great film. Yeah. Neil, did you live this film through your tattoos or just enjoy it? <laughs> to me, I'm, to my shame, I haven't seen it. Or yeah. insomnia, sadly. Wow. Um, but wow. Now Were you in for a treat? Yeah, no, you shocked me there. I, I keep looking at it and thinking, do I want to watch this? Ultimately, the, the themes, the, the things I really like about it is it's about how the mind defends itself. Kind of, can you trust your own memory? Like, this is the ultimate um, unreliable narrator film. And can you heal if you can't feel the passage of time? You know, it, you have those scenes where... He can be frantic or calm or, or elated, but it, it's it's like holding on to sand, isn't it? It's gone, and it's it's really mm. clever. It's really enjoyable. Okay, I'll put it on the list. And Jeff, if that doesn't sound emotional, what is? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really for me. It's always been the the main point being that time heals everything. Mm. But what happens if, if you haven't got time? If you haven't it's got, just yeah, really yeah. clever. If I if I can Indeed. give you a word of advice, Neil, don't drink when you're watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably run out by then. <laughs> so moving on, the success of this film certainly critically brought Christopher Nolan to the attention of Steven Soderbergh, who was looking for a director for his remake of the Norwegian film Insomnia. And I would say this is one of two films in Nolan's career that were pretty much studio controlled. The other being Batman Begins, and we'll talk about the Batman films later. Someone out there just beat a 17-year-old girl to death. Your job is to find him. Doesn't say in the report that he clipped her nails. He washed her hair. No mutilation? Not this time. He tortures him, makes him do things, and keeps him there for three days. This guy, he crossed the line, and he didn't even blink. Phil, how do you think Insomnia turned out? I watched this on release. I really loved it. I thought it was brilliant. And again, the reason I thought it was brilliant was because it's it's basically a... A, a detective thriller film noir but it's got this hook about memory and guilt and how our memory and our guilt can kind of drive you to do sort of different things than you probably would normally do and that's kind of like what sets it apart watching it again as like a suite of all of his other films 
if I was forced to put these into an order, following would be bottom and insomnia would be second bottom. But that's purely, uh, as Graham said, it's a relative thing because I think insomnia is a really good film. But it doesn't do any of the things that Nolan does in his other films because, as you've said, for me, this was this was Nolan essentially saying, I've done those two films on small budget. I'm going to prove to a studio that I can deliver a film on time, on budget, exactly as asked, with a an acting team of really, really big names. So at the time, Hilary Swank had just won Best Actress Oscar. Al Pacino's Al Pacino and Robin Williams' Robin Williams. You know, they're three really big names to lead this film. This, for, for him, was his calling card to the studios to say, I can manage a film on a, I think this one was just under 50 million budget. Um, He can manage the film. He can manage big actors. He can get really good performances. Robin Williams, Pacino um, are really good. Um, There's a couple of other small performances as well that are really good. On the rewatch front, there's not much to it. What you see on face value is, is what it is. Well, a couple of things on that. I mean, it has a, a lovely washed out quality. And again, that carries in, I think, from Memento. The the look and colouring of the film is incredible. Uh, but also, I've got to say, I, I thought for me, Robin Williams was incredible, particularly as he's not in it for the first hour. But bloody hell, he makes an impression when he comes into it. I mean, what are your thoughts on that performance? Yeah, Robin Williams, I think, easily puts his best performance of any film into this one this was his dark year because i think he did um was it one the hour night. photo and night listener i think oh one hour photo oh. jesus wept um but he did a couple of films at that time that were, that were sort of dark but this was really really good but actually <clears throat> i know it's a bit boring to say pacino is the best one in it there's one scene that pacino has sort of I'd say 30 minutes in maybe where he's got to make a difficult phone call. Just that one scene where his whole demeanor and character and the way he speaks, he just absolutely nails it. And it's so, so good. And it really shows you what this character is going to go through throughout the film. And as you watch it, um, Pacino's whole demeanor just goes from a confident brash sort of detective to somebody who's just crushed by the weight of the guilt that's running through his mind. And he's almost sort of crumples in on himself by the end. And the, uh, and what I wanted to mention as well is Martin Donovan and Moratini give um, really good sort of small performances. They, they basically, their job in the film is to act as Pacino's character's conscience. So they kind of like reflect off of him so that he can try to actually plumb the depths of his emotions. But yeah, um, Williams is great, and um, you know he's obviously a loss that he left us so early. Absolutely, absolutely. Deck, have you seen this one? And, and if so, what what impression did it make on you? Oh, I, I really enjoyed this film. You know my thing about sort of Scandi noir type things, and um, <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed this. I love the fact. I mean, I'm lucky. I don't. I've never suffered from insomnia. So, but I can imagine it would be like this. Um, the way he gets a sort of Pacino's character the tiredness and the trying to make decisions and the, and the haziness and the, and he gets all that across and the way, the way he films it. And I, I think that's really clever because how do you, you know, something like tiredness, how do you get that across in a film? But he manages to do it. He manages to get that, 
that whole element of lack of sleep and, and how it affects you, as well as all the guilt and other stuff he's going through. Uh, I thought he did it brilliantly. Did it make you tired as well when you watch it, Deck? Because every time I watch this film, at the end of it, I feel really <laughs> tired. Yeah, I think it does. No, I think it does. You're right. It does make you a bit sleepy, but but it still keeps you gripped. But, but oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't, right. I don't mean that. I just It's almost like he's he nails it so well that Pacino's character is exhausted and you feel exhausted as a result. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I just think that's brilliant. What, what about you, Graham? What do you think of Al Pacino in this? I loved Al Pacino in this. Now, I have a very strange story about this film. So I watched Memento in 2000 and then 2002, here's this young upstart director. He's, and I went to see the film and I was really, really disappointed. And I thought, what the hell, he's dropped the ball? Or was this just the difficult second album syndrome? What's going on here? I remember coming home and saying to my wife, oh, I think Christopher Nolan's lost it. And as the week went on, I thought, well, that was interesting. And, oh, Williams was really good. I went back and saw it the next week. And it was me, not the film. It was brilliant the second time around. And I just, I've loved it ever since. I just thought it was a great film. But I don't know what was wrong with me the first time I saw it, because I, maybe I'd just built up so much excitement about, here's Chris, another Christopher Nolan. It's going to be just like Memento. And it wasn't. It was, as Phil said, look, give me $50 million and I can do you a big epic on a grand scale just gone in with the wrong attitude. But it still haunted me for a week until I went back and saw it again. So insomnia led to essentially what was the spine of what Christopher Nolan has done and everything's from that, and that's the three Batman films. Your parents' death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. Just a legend, Mr. Wayne. He's here. Who? The Batman. Guy dresses up like a bat clearly has issues. Now, a lot's been said, and we've said a lot about these films over the years, whether Batman Begins, Dark Knight, or The Dark Knight Rises. So, Phil, an almost impossible question for you then. Which, in your opinion, is the best and why? Yeah, this this is an impossible question. I've changed my mind on this so many times. I do love them all, and they all do different things. And the one thing I will say before I give my answer is Dark Knight Rises is so much better than a lot of people give it credit for. I know that we disagree on this a little bit as well, but Bane, for me, is one of the greatest villains ever put on screen, and his voice is amazing. <laughs> now they fixed the sound, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I probably will be boring and lump for the Dark Knight, and that is mostly because I love Heat. I think Heat is one of the greatest films ever made, and Nolan clearly believes that as well. There's so many references to Heat in The Dark Knight that, and, and I know people will talk about Heath Ledger as the Joker, but for mm. me, it's actually the setting, um, the cinematography, and and like that opening bank heist and the mm. the truck flipping. You know, those things for me really stand out and are the things that I remember. Do you think though, if you took that scene out with the two of them, 
the really good scene with the two of them in the cell it would change your mind if you didn't yeah, have that in it. It might do. And again, actually, that's a good scene to bring up because again, that's the heat scene. That's the coffee shop scene between De Niro yeah, and Pacino. Yeah. And, you, and you're right. And without that scene, it wouldn't be quite the film that it is. But I love that film. I love the trilogy. And, um, and I, I will say anyone who, because I think quite a lot of people seen it, but any people who think, do you know what, The Dark Knight Rises was weak, I'd really urge you to watch it again because it is so, so good in the context of the the trilogy ender and what's gone before and, and how he sort of wraps it up as Batman as a symbol, which is kind of what he's led to all the way along the line. It is, I just think it's really, really clever. And, and we'll talk about the acting, I think, in a minute, but, you know, you mentioned the acting and Deck mentioned it earlier, but you think of how many huge names are across those three Bat films and they all give really, really phenomenal performances. Isn't the problem, though, is that it is a trilogy? So this is, this is I have the same dilemma as you. I keep switching them around. But Batman Begins, for me, edges it slightly because without it, there wouldn't be the other two. I know that sounds stupid, but if it hadn't have been as good as it was, there yeah. probably wouldn't have been the other two. And, and I think it. everyone says, um, you know, Iron Man set the scene for the whole thing. I, I think Batman Begins does, really, more, more so. Changes superhero films from their sort of twee, colourful Superman-type things to a dark sort of doom and gloom. And yeah. I think Batman Be- Begins does that brilliantly. And it explained exactly how he becomes Batman. I just thought it was just absolutely spot on. I would say the third one's the weaker. Sorry, Phil. But <laughs> mainly because I think it's rounding everything up which i know it's got to do because it's a trilogy uh, but i think that always makes it weaker it's the same with things like lord of the rings as well i always think that the end one makes it weaker because it is the end one i just don't think it's quite got what the other two have got and I, also i'm not sure whether that end scene is is it a dream or is it not i don't know i've never made my mind up about that it's real it's real come on let's all be positive <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think actually jeff you uh you have christopher nolan to blame for the marvel cinematic universe because i think dex right oh, great. What, what's great what, what nolan <laughs> did with this film is he changed the entire face of comic book movies didn't he that's that's fantastic, fantastic. Isn't it, really? he makes the best comic book hero movie that's ever been made in the dark night and then he inadvertently Frankenstein-like, created the Marvel Universe. Absolutely bloody (laughs) brilliant. Neil, in your opinion, the best and why? Oh, well, I mean, The Dark Knight just had such a great effect on me. It was a fantastic film, but I I must admit, I agree with Deck. I'm going to go with Batman Begins. It just I've watched that so many times, and each time I just think, this is really good. I think it's flawed. It doesn't quite do what it I think he really set out to do probably because of studio influence but I really like that one Graham I gotta be different I really like the Dark Knight I think it just because it's Batman at the height of his powers and he's got the definitive Batman villain to play against and Heath Ledger just rewrites the rules with his portrayal of the Joker. And we've already mentioned the heist, the beginning. It was just a roller coaster ride in the cinema watching that opening. It was fantastic. And then you meet the Joker and you he tells the story of how he got the the scars and it keeps changing and you realize, oh, this guy's completely crazy. 
And then he does things, and you go, oh, no, he's not crazy. He's very clever. And I, I just thought it was fantastic. I mm. loved it. I did love the third one, Touch of Sorrow, because that was the end of it. If you were going to put them, you know, gold, silver, and bronze, I would probably go The Dark Knight, then Bane, and then Batman Begins. So yeah. you know what this means, though? That means we've given Jeff the casting vote. It is the Dark Knight. There's no question about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is the best comic book movie ever made. It's the godfather of comic book films. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're probably right, yeah. But when you look at the, the trilogy as a whole, so you've got Heath Ledger and Tom Hardy like absolutely nailing those sort of villains. But then you've got Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman and Gary, Gary Oldman, Oldman in recurring yeah. sort of roles. And then you've got the likes of Killian Murphy, who I think was so great in The Scarecrow and appeared again in, in the next two. And you've got people like Maggie Gyllenhaal in The Dark Knight taking over from Katie Holmes and doing an infinitely better job. Um, <laughs> Anne Hathaway, I think, is a really good Catwoman. And oh, yes. Marilyn Cotillard, I thought, was also yeah. really good in the last one as well. So, yeah, And that's just definitely. naming a few because there's many, got many Aaron more Ec- in there. Aaron Eckhart as well, wasn't he? He yeah. was very good. Yeah. Yeah. I always feel like, I mean, I don't know how it works exactly, but you have to think the actors must trust him implicitly because the likes of Killian Murphy and um, Liam Neeson and Michael Caine are barely in that third film, but they're happy to turn up and give you know really good performances for a couple of scenes. But, you know, as great as these films are, and they are great, Phil has destroyed it for me this evening by saying, as a result of this came the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I just, well, I'm in despair now, really. So, (laughs) now, originally tonight, I wasn't going to talk about The Prestige because we covered it quite extensively in show 96. And we had some major theories on that. Every great magic trick consists of three acts. The first act is called the pledge the magician shows you something ordinary but of course it probably isn't the second act is called the turn he's obsessed with discovering your method the magician makes this ordinary something do something extraordinary huh now you're looking for the secret but you won't find it that's why there's a third act called the prestige Following on from that show, Deck went and watched The Prestige for the first time. So I think it's only fair to throw it to Deck now to think, what do you think about The Prestige? Um, I thought it was excellent. It wasn't the first time, Jeff. Sorry. It was, was it? Actually, oh, right. Sorry. No, it wasn't. But it'd been the longest because it was the one that's probably been the longest time since I've watched it, if that makes sense. Because I think all the other ones, even the ones that are older, I've watched more recently. And it was only because when you guys were talking about it on your review show, I thought, oh, I haven't seen that film in so long. Um, and then I managed to find it on a streaming service and watched it. And, um, yeah, I still love it. Um, yeah, it was still a great film. And again, like most Nolan films, you see more in it and you get sort of less confused and more confused by watching it again. Cause you, some things you go, oh, I didn't see that last time and everything's going, oh yeah, but because I didn't see that last time now I'm confused. So, um, yeah, but, and again, he's got good performances out of people that you wouldn't normally expect to give that good a performance. So, um, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, for anybody who hasn't heard episode 96, I strongly recommend you go back there because we come up with a theory mm. that is just off the wall, and I stand by that theory. Yeah, so I don't, yeah, I don't agree with that theory, but I think it's a bloody good idea. 
<laughs> no, I think it is because it's a magic trick. It's the only part. It's you're taken in completely by the magic trick. But we'll just go over old ground. So let's yeah, yeah. quickly leap to his James Bond audition, which was Inception. We create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their secrets. Then you break in and steal it. Well. It's not strictly speaking legal. It's called Inception. Already, Inception does look to me like an audition for a James Bond film. Do you think Nolan could make a Bond film? This is where the warned high-level reference to Tenet is is going to pop in. So. Inception, I think, you know, you could argue that that would be a good Bond film. Tenet is even more so because essentially both are spies jet setting around the world wearing really nice suits, really amazing action sequences, etc. I do think that Nolan would make a brilliant Bond film, but I also think that he'd be really wasted on a Bond film because we've got a guy who has really great original vision and we're talking about the multi-layered and multiple rewatches because what's he trying to say and all those sorts of things. And I think that he'd be shackled somewhat by the conventional template of a Bond film. Would they really let him do a Nolan version of Bond or would they just be looking for him to do the, you know, we we're, we're looking for your amazing action sort of, impresarioness and and we want all of that but we don't want you to um confuse anyone with a, a timeline that cross cuts back and forth between the future and the past and we don't want any um, sort of treatises on how memory affects people <laughs> it's not going to fly for the the bonds film scene is it yeah i think i'm with you on that one i think the bond films have to be so accessible that um they can make a billion dollars profit and i don't think christopher nolan would do it anyway Interesting. On my rewatch of Inception, sort of watching them all together, which I think I've said almost every time, I really, really do recommend like picking a director and watching their films in sequence. It's really interesting to sort of watch them develop. Inception, for as tricksy as I remember it being when I saw it at the cinema, is probably his most straightforward film. When you watch it again, it is really kind of simple. You know, it's an action blockbuster. It propels you forward through the plot. There's always, you know, the next action scene. And whilst it's got a tricksy sort of dream within a dream layer, they explain it all to you, like, really, yeah. really well. It's really good keep exposition. referring back to the original ones, don't yeah. they? Where, um, they all, they, where the first one is, the second is, the third one is, and they keep going back and forth to show you where everything is. Yeah. Neil, you've not seen Memento. You watch Memento and then watch Inception and think about the themes mm. that he's looking about, uh, about how the mind defends itself. It's okay. really interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah, I will do. Which leads me on, and this is a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Inception, but I can't believe you've made it this far through on Christopher Nolan without seeing Inception. Phil, in your opinion, is he in a dream in the end or is he in reality? I'm optimistic. As as with The Dark Knight Rises, I think that he's made it out. I think that we have to believe that all of that has, you know, come through and worked for him. But ultimately, I think Nolan wants us to make our own mind up because, you know, back to his themes in Memento and sort of this, you know, it could easily be argued that it's his brain defending himself. It's the only way that he can survive is to think that. 
Yeah, I think he's uh, he's made it out at the end, and it's not just the wedding rings or the kids' clothes or any of those things. I just think it ties the film up beautifully. Otherwise, what was it all for? Yeah, yeah. no, I agree. Okay, so you agree, Deck? Um, I think it doesn't matter. He wants mm. to be. He wants to be with his children. No, he wants yeah, to be cool. with his children. And I know, as a father, yeah. you'd be with your children, whether that meant you were still in the dream or whether it meant it was reality. You, he just wants to be with his children, and that's what happens at the end. Speaking and you watch Devs. I was going to say, speaking of which, the best TV series that's been on this yeah. year, Devs. Exactly yeah. what you just talked about, Deck. I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I've got to agree with the majority on this that I think that he has made it out. For me, the thing is, in that last sequence, you see the children's faces, and every other time when it's a dream, you don't mm, see their faces. No. Yeah. So I think that, to me, indicates that he's come out of it. So, yep, I'm all for the happy ending. And speaking of happiness, let's talk about Interstellar. We used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now just look down. Worry about our place in the dirt. Go for main engine. Start T minus ten. We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar system can help us. Nine. I've got kids, Professor. How long? What have you gone? Eight. I'm asking you to trust me. Seven. Murph. You have to talk to me, Murph. Six. I need to fix this before I go. Five main engines start. Couldn't you have told her you were going to save the world? No. Four. When you become a parent. Three. One thing becomes really clear. Two. And that's you want to make sure your children feel safe. One. There are many things about this film, and they tried to get the science right, which really is admirable. Unfortunately, there's this plot we've got to deal with. It's a real clunker. Phil, am I wrong? And if so, why? Absolutely. Um, so I've, I've got to try and do, I've got to give this film some justice. So I think Interstellar is hands down his best film. And I know that I'm not really in the majority on that, certainly not when I look online and other people's lists and things like that. But for me, it explores the facets of human behavior like his other films does so it looks at that indomitable spirit to survive but the key is that it it's about love and you know what greater thing in this world is there than the love of a parent for their child Uh, and that's what this film is about and it refers to love in the film as an observable quantifiable force just like gravity so Whenever I've spoken to people about how, oh, do you know what? The first two thirds of the film are really good, space travel, et cetera, et cetera. But then it just goes bonkers and nuts and it's just completely stupid, MacGuffin, blah, 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 blah. He's told you all the way through that love is the greatest force, just like gravity. It's quantifiable. And actually, that is what is used as the solution to the problem, essentially. And we talked about earlier about, you know, does he do emotion, et cetera, et cetera. And the scene I wanted to talk about after they've been on the planet with the water that is close to the black hole and time relativity sort of distortion. And for I them, I, I, the film, by the way, that is brilliant. That scene. Yeah. So, so I think they're, um, they're there for just over an hour because a mistake happens, but ultimately what that does is it costs them 23 years and he comes back to the spaceship and 
he has 23 years worth of video files that have been sent to him by his children. It starts by having the video calls, but then what he does is he just zooms in on McConaughey's face as he watches that scene. And it is heartbreaking. And I am not ashamed to say that every time I see that film, I am in tears. I'm floods of tears because just the emotion on McConaughey's face to show that, you know, the most valuable thing for him is, yes, he wants to save the world or, you know, the population and make a place for his children. But he also had an expectation that he wouldn't lose his entire time with them uh, and you see it all there on his face. And I think it's the most emotional thing that he's done. Um, Nolan has got a daughter. I do feel sorry for Nolan's sons. I wonder how they feel when they, they watch that film. Because ultimately, the film is about a father's love for his daughter. And it's one of those things where great sci-fi has a really boring, mundane, human emotion, you know, behaviour. And it fits it into a unique, extraordinary world, which is what he's done here. And, you know, the robots are really cool. What What isn't there to like? <laughs> okay, I'll come back to what uh, what we don't like in a moment. But let's hand over to Graham first. Oh, I love it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> That's it, it. I knew <laughs> No, I do. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's sci-fi. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Time, dil- time dilation as a concept is the hardest thing to do in books. And uh, Joe Alderman did it in The Forever War which is another sci-fi classic. Nolan did it in this, and I thought, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. Oh, it's working. It's working. <laughs> you know, no, it's no, just it didn't. brilliant. No, it didn't. And I loved it. I, and I loved the robots. And I I like the fact that, again, he doesn't explain anything. Why is the Earth dying? What, what's gone wrong? What's caused that? Why is everybody now believing in conspiracy theories? And oh, can we, can we talk about the, the super cool um, the Earth dying thing? So I mentioned mm. this in, in my review, and I don't know if you guys are aware, but the testimonials that he has are actually real people. Have you, have you seen that? No. So um, what he did is... He, he contacted a documentary filmmaker who had made a documentary about the 1920s Dust Bowl era in middle America and oh, the people right. who lived through that and, you know, the storms and, you know, the crops dying and things like that. And he took scenes from his documentary and he put them into his film because mm-hmm. it gave them more weight and realism because that was real people's real experiences. Wow. Okay. See? And that just makes it better. <sighs> It's funny, this whole podcast, we're nitpicking about some yes. really great films. And I feel bad with Interstellar because I feel like I'm going to be nitpicking over what is a very, very good film. But it's just when you compare it to some of his others, it's that's the problem, isn't it? But um, the thing about Interstellar, it is a, a cinema experience. And that's why I think Nolan is brilliant at getting people into the cinema. You have to see these on big screens. You can watch them again on smaller screens, but you have to see them on a big screen. And Interstellar absolutely sums that up i think some of the scenes are fantastic and some of the shots the the planet that uh, everyone thinks it's mountains and it's not it's it's waves and it's just that's like oh my goodness and i just think it's beautiful but and i agree some of the being a father again myself to a son and a daughter is his most emotional of all his films i think but i still think there are just doesn't quite hit all the notes and again it is nitpicking that's all it is i just think it doesn't quite tie up. I, I don't know why. I can't really explain it, but 
it it falls down the list for me because it just doesn't quite have the connection that some of these other ones do and I, I don't know why okay thank you for that that leads nicely to me so there are two aspects of this that i really do like and one of the production values and and as we said about that plan i think is amazing and there's another one but i'm going to come back to that in a minute but the plot is a clunker it really is dreadful so it talks about the earth dying but you get an almost idealized world in the beginning because most of the end of the world has happened before the film starts and you don't really get that you know it seems fine the crops aren't working but hey we're getting that in britain at the moment so i really wouldn't worry about it but the bit that really gets me and that really annoys me is this trapped out in space and um this quantum reality that helps him get back and solves all the problems with earth and you know it's sort of like these scientists you know it, it's him in the future well if it's him in the future how did he get there you know like did he go on a bender forget about it and fixed everything no what you've got is god fixing it oh, god sets it all up for him and allows him <laughs> that's not to, what is said in the film it's yeah not of course it, well no because it talks about quantum realities and quantum realities to scientists is god you know it, it's yes. their <laughs> it's their old and new testament it's it's a, Christopher Nolan's trying to get you to believe in religion by watching Interstellar. Oh, and and, and wow. you guys are falling for it. And Jeff, were you drinking again? Were you watching it drunk? No. no, 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 no. I was perfectly sober watching it. I, think, I wish I did have a drink. I think the no, first, that's the problem. I think the first one that you mentioned is really easy and to to sort of talk about in terms of you weren't listening to the film to some extent because the whole world dying and crops failing, they at great length talk about how various crops are failing because of this blight that's killing them off. But not only is it killing them off, but they can't ever get them to to work again as a result. So the, the types of food, the diversity of food is shrinking. But not only that, but the soil is eroding and that means that they can't plant these crops and as a result, there's less oxygen in the atmosphere and people's lungs are breaking down because of the amount of carbon dioxide that they're breathing. And that they have that whole scene where um, you see Casey Affleck's son, which is uh, Matthew McConaughey's grandson, who's, you know, he's a teenager, but he can't breathe properly and he's coughing a lot. You know, and they, they talk about all those things. So in terms of that, he doesn't explain how and why they're in such a precarious position. It's all there but you were probably too annoyed about love being a quantifiable thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite probably. But okay. All right. Uh, yeah. There's an argument for, for what you're saying, but you know, I like an end of the world film, like silent green. That's what I call an end of the world film. Uh, oh, not standing I think, around. I think it's, it's one of those things where it, you could almost sort of point. He, he made um, the Batman films so good because what he wanted to do is make them realistic to as much as much an extent as he could about a guy dressing as a bat sort of thing. And, you know, maybe some of this film is dull because actually he's talking about something that's a, a really boring, long-winded, drawn-out way for our planet to die, but it's perfectly feasible. Okay. And, and, you know, like I said, you know, the, the drawing on the Dust Bowl stuff is he's actually taking past history and just playing it out in a much more catastrophic fashion. So something I don't normally say in these podcasts, you make a good point and I'm willing to concede on this. 
However, oh, holy, hang on, I'm just <laughs> dropping a note to the Pope here to claim a miracle. Hang however, on. my second point, the religion bit where God saves them. Oh, good grief. Yeah, so it's not God. Um, so Of course it's God. It's, it's not anybody else, is it? No, but they, again, it's one of these things where I think Nolan leaves it up to you, but there's discussion about you know, civilization as a whole will evolve and get to the point where they transcend you know, our kind of three-dimensional kind of world. And that's one of the discussion points that they have. And they also talk, you know, about that actually is, is that like a, you know, something that's been created by a future civilization because they know at what point, you know, it needs to be there. And yes, you get into time paradoxes and all those sorts of things, but that's the whole point is there a paradox. You can't, there isn't an answer to that. And it's kind of... Whenever anybody says paradox in a Christopher Nolan film, and you know what I'm getting at your film, <laughs> do, that yes. is just bad script writing. Oh, good <laughs> grief. So, you know, I can't work out a way because humanity is going to die, so I'll invent this paradox. Actually, it's God, but we'll call it no, paradox. <laughs> yes, it is, Graham. Accept it. But before we do, so let's let's accept that we we won't agree. Let's talk about the acting. Yeah, okay. I did I did want to sort because of, we've talked about actors and stuff. I was really um, surprised when I re watched this how many people were in it and how many famous people were in it because Timothy Chalamet is in this film mm. and I, I hadn't uh, obviously he's famous now he wasn't when it came out and when I watched it again I was like oh I recognise him he's got Jessica Chastain Ellen Burstyn. John Lithgow, Timothy Chalamet, Wes Bentley, who probably has only been in two good films, American Beauty and this, Casey Affleck, Matt Damon is completely uncredited, not cre- credited in the film. And that's a good performance. That was good. Um, and of course, Michael Caine gets to recite a Dylan Thomas poem a lot. I thought oh, that would have made you happy, Jeff. Yeah. Do not, do not go gentle into that. Good night. Rage, so, yeah. rage against the dying of the light. It's amazing. I love this film. And, and I actually, I, I agree with Deck. It really does do better in the cinema. It is, it's got its thumping um, score and sound. And he does that thing where he juxtaposes in atmosphere the sound of a shuttle to outside where there's nothing. That's an aspect that I want to go to, which I really did like about this film. Because I think Christopher Nolan brings out the best in Hans Zimmer as a composer. And to use church organ for the music on this, that expanse, and obviously the religious aspect of a church <laughs> organ, but so, oh, you know, but, back on his gig again. but he, he uses a church organ to suggest the enormity of space, which I think is, is tremendous. And Zimmer started work on this score just from notes from Nolan that, look, this is, I'm, I'm thinking of doing a film on this theme. What can you do for music? That's how it started. He didn't even have a script parts of the script that um, when they were written, they were going to Zimmer, which doesn't normally happen. But I do think that with this and Inception, you know, and even Dunkirk, he just brings out some of the best of, of Hans Zimmer's work. And I feel that one of the things, well, we don't really want to go into Tenet, but Tenet didn't have Hans Zimmer doing the music score because Zimmer wanted to go and do Dune, but he's never going to beat Toto. <laughs> and um, but, so I think that uh, Jeff, Jeff, what? 
Can yeah. you please start drinking again? <laughs> please, because yeah. you've lost the plot completely. This weekend, you I'm going to start really drinking again. have, oh, good God, and go back on your meds as well, please. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask In fact, meds to take the soapbox yeah. away as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, no, With I do think, but in all seriousness, Toto oh. in the original 1984 Dune were amazing. That I'd is one of the rather great have root canal surgery <laughs> than that. God almighty, it's crap. No, it's not. <laughs> 70s take... hair metal. Phil, as you watched all these back-to-back, what did Hans Zimmer say to you? Um, well, I, I guess I would always defer to you on music, but I was uh, what you just said actually helped me out on, on a question because Zimmer has scored all his films from... Insomnia, I think. So I think that he... No, um, that was David Julian. So David Julian did Memento and Insomnia, and then they had to have a big-name composer when he did Batman. Essentially, from then then, Tenet, which obviously just came out, that's his first film without Zimmer since then. Um, so you obviously filled in the gap there of why he, he didn't do that film if he was doing June. But I think that the scores in Nolan films are actually something that are really recognisable because they're always really bombastic. They do have that kind of cinema sound system in mind. And I know that a lot of people complain about Nolan's sound mixing. And obviously you complained about Bane before, you know, the IMAX version preview of Bane. He seems to hide some dialogue sometimes in sound because he wants it almost like a real-world scenario where you might not necessarily always be able to hear something. Zimmer's scores are really good, and in um, the likes of Inception, they're really propulsive in terms of those action sequences and putting you onto the edge of your seat. See, I always wondered... Because when Ridley Scott made Alien, he masked sound deliberately in the first half an hour. So up to, you know, till the alien appears, there's a lot. You do have some difficulty sharing everything that was said, and it was done deliberately. And I wonder whether Nolan has learned from what Scott did, because it puts you on edge. You're trying to work out everything that's going on around you, and part of that's the dialogue. Yeah, I, I think he does it on purpose. I mean, there's no yeah. when you look at how specific everything in all of his films are and how like intricately put together they are if you look at all that and then you say to me oh well when he did the sound edit he was a bit tired and he was looking the other way and not really listening like that would shock me because everything is very very specific in his films so i think he does it on purpose he doesn't want you necessarily to hear it all first time he wants you to kind of have to experience it and feel it Obviously, Christopher Nolan is fascinated with the concept of time. And Interstellar, Inception, and Dunkirk all play with the notion of time. And his brother, Jonathan, does the same thing. Westworld season one was excellent in the way it played with time. Failed so badly in season two, he had to make season three linear. Do you think that Christopher Nolan should stop playing with this theme now and Okay, you've made your point about time. Look for something else. 
No, I, I don't think we should be asking any director who's fascinated by theme or, and something that inspires them to do something different. I mean, you absolutely are not going to get me moaning if Martin Scorsese says he's going to make another gangster film. And, <laughs> and, and the next time Wes Anderson releases a film that's got a title card, perfect symmetry and a dysfunctional family in it, I'm not going to be complaining. <laughs> um, you know, it's, you know, it's like his muse, isn't it? It fuels him. It's, it's, something he's fascinated by and so far he's done 11 films and managed to make every one you know fundamentally different and interesting and you know worth multiple watches so unless he makes a few clunkers in a row i don't think we should be asking for anything different do you know what that was a brilliant answer so let's go to dunkirk the enemy tanks have stopped why why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. So it's an interesting take on war. And yet again, as we said, in time and the way he plays with three constructs. Did Dunkirk work for you? Yeah, I love this film. And, and what Dex said earlier about um, Interstellar being a cinema film, I think actually is even more so for Dunkirk. So I watched that a couple of times in an IMAX theatre. And mm. when those planes come over the beach and start firing, it was so scary. Like the sound and the, the noise, it just had you kind of, so tense and even with a 55 inch television and, and sound bar and surround sounds I cannot recreate that at my home of all of his films I think it's the one that loses the most on the smaller screen it's like Memento when we talked about when I said about that um, special feature where you could watch it in sequence it works because of the way that he structured it because as you kind of move along through the film, there are scenes that you see from multiple viewpoints. And actually there are scenes where you know what will happen, but you're still absolutely gripped when you see them the second time from a different viewpoint. And I just think it was a really clever way to tell a really simple story about human spirit and emotion. He, he never mentions the Germans. No. You never see them. Um, I think you maybe do at the very, very end yeah, when Tom yeah. Hardy puts his hands up. Yes, yeah, but, when they come but they're over. in shadow. Yeah. So they're never, they're never clearly defined at all. Yeah. Sneaky, aren't they? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Deck, what do you think of Dunkirk? Uh, I agree with everything that Phil said. I mean, I, I think it's a story everyone knows. Everyone's been taught it at school. Everyone knows it. And yet he makes it almost seem new in the way that he filmed it in the, the, the different styles he used and and the three different times and vehicles he's using so the planes and the boats and the men on the beach i think you're right it loses a lot on a small screen but then over lockdown and they when the cinemas first opened and they started re-showing old films a lot of them showed christopher nolan films because they belong on the big screen and people like to watch them more than once so uh, and i think that's testimony i mean and, and what Phil said about the sound, the only other film I can think of that like that, that, lo- that the sound was immense at the time and lose it on a small screen, is Jurassic Park by Steven Spielberg. I mean, that film 
will never be the same as it was when I first saw it on the on the big screen. And it's still a good film, but it's that noise and and sound and everything and the whole experience, the whole cinema. It sums up what we all missed over these last few months. It just sums up totally that cinema experience. The big screen experience can go wrong, can't it, Neil? Yes, yes, I was going to say that. The first time you see it, a film, it does have an effect on you. And in this one, the sound was so bad. And that was the BFI cinema. Yeah, uh, and I put my hand up. That was my fault. Yes, it I was. Should, I should have put tickets in advance, but when I checked the day before, there were hardly any seats taken. So the biggest screen in Europe, we end up just yards away from. To be fair, it was packed. It was a, a cracking you know, experience. But watching it again, it is a cracking film, isn't it? It really is. I love the whole scenes in the aircraft. Uh, in the Spitfire, where he's trying to work out with the chalkboard how much fuel he had left. Detail is fantastic. Surprise, surprise. I absolutely love it. And, yeah, I think you've all mentioned it. It's the it's the sound. And I saw it twice in IMAX, and it just got me every time. And, that, and those Spitfires come right over your head, and I ducked. You know, it was <laughs> I was that into it. And... I've watched it a, a couple of times at home since, and you're right. It, you just cannot create that effect. Not just the sound of the Spitfires, but it's also, it starts with the sound of those those bullets whizzing past the, mm. the young guys walking in the street. And I haven't heard guns sound that uh, loud, to go back to Phil's original point, since Heat, when they have that battle in the street and the sound of the gunfire in the street in the, the battle in heat is just incredible i got that effect again and then when the guys are hiding inside that old boat and the germans are shooting through the boat and the that it's the yes, metal that's... pieces are flying around inside that's just incredible yes. From start to finish, I was totally captivated, and I went straight back the next day and watched it again. And, and, and on an earlier point about Christopher Nolan in emotion, I think one of the big emotional scenes in that film is when the guy has to hold the castle or fort or whatever it is, and he talks to him over the phone, doesn't he? And he just basically says to him, there's almost no words are said between them, but you know that he is basically sacrificing his life for the good of everyone. That is very emotive, and it's done again. It's done with very few words, and they don't ramp up the music like they do in other films. So it's it's done differently, but it still hits you right in the heart. Yeah, yeah, and you know the 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 joy on the faces of the uh, the troops when the um, Spitfires appear. Yes, there's almost these these you know, angels of vengeance coming straight out of nowhere. It's just great. And as Niels pointed out, all the techie bits about trying yes. to work out how much petrol he's got left. Is he turning and banking fast enough to hit the Messerschmitt? It's just so well done. Yeah. And you understand it all. I've never been in a Spitfire, and I expl- I understand it. And you find out just how good Rylance is, Mark Rylance. Oh, yes, yes. He's your dad, isn't he? He's he's gone in in his slippers and a cardigan. This is what we have to do, son. Yes, yeah. yeah. There's there's no point arguing with him. This is what we're going to do. Okay, dad, we're off. And the trivia question for Dunkirk, what part did Michael Caine play? Oh, I know know that. I put that in my article, but I'll let the others see if they know. 
Was he the voice of the onboard computer in the Spitfire? <laughs> well, he kind, he he kind of was because he's the guy that they, 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 they were raiding. He was like base for the Spitfires. Yeah, when they he were was the air traffic control. Ah, yeah. ah, right. No, I didn't spot that at all. Let's start to wrap this up then. So we'll skip Tenant. As I said, we're not saying anything about that. What subject, Phil, would you like to see Christopher Nolan tackle next? So, yeah, when I, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, so for his 11 films, he's done some quite different things and he's only really been in the real world a couple of times because he generally does big sort of science fiction films. I couldn't really possibly guess what the guy's going to do next because he generally does really original big science fiction films. So I started thinking about the fact that he really likes time and memory and people's versions of events because based on memory. And I thought... If he was going to remake a film, what about Rashomon? Because mm. Rashomon is all about four different people's version of a single event yeah. and how they remember it differently. That's and a good call. And I thought, you know, I mean, Ooh. he's, you know, he's not going to. I don't think he's the sort of person who would remake a film. But if I had to pick something, because I'm not clever enough to come up with an original concept, that would be the one. <laughs> me both, Phil. I thought long and hard about this one, and I don't know. Um, I thought, should he do something a bit more period, further back, but then Dunkirk is back a little bit, but should he go costume thing? But then you think, is it just going to be the same? I really, I don't care what he does, honestly. I'll go and see it, whatever it is. Okay. Graham? Yeah, I struggle with this one as well, because I just like him to surprise me. I read a book uh, last year um, about a young female ambassador. It's a sci-fi book, obviously. A young female ambassador who's gone to this empire that runs the galaxy, basically. And she's got a, a thing in her head which gives her memories of everybody who's come before. And that's the only thing I could think of. This is a really good book about betrayal and people doing the right thing but for wrong reasons. And I thought he would make this really work well. But no, I, I'm, I'm with Deck on this. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch anything. You, yeah. You've jogged my memory, Graham. I've got one. So there's a science fiction book called Numenon, which is about... Oh, um, that's time dilation again, isn't yeah, it? Long so, periods so of it's, space. It's yeah. about a, a few... I can't remember how many other... There's a number of ships that set yep. up to find this anomaly in space. And the journey is going to be hundreds of years. And they make, um, I think it's clones, and those clones, yeah. uh, so you have the same sort of person essentially, but across different timelines of hundreds of years. And the, the ship has basically a story of almost like the growth of civilization. They have revolts and various things happen on board. And that would fit, you know, from that science fiction time, the same person and how they behave differently and those sort of things, that would probably fit something he'd do. What's your view on his portrayal of females in his films? Because I know there's some controversy over he gives them really small parts and doesn't, you know, the usual thing that people moan about. But what are your guys' views on that? I mean, my view on that is that um, the film industry is dominated by men and men know how to write about men and he's not very good at like, writing parts for women. So I think it's a valid concern. I don't think he is very good at writing parts for women. When you look at across his films with perhaps the exception of Jessica Chastain's scientist in Interstellar, 
he hasn't got too many sort of large roles. I guess Maggie Gyllenhaal in Dark Knight. Mm. But when you look at the prestige, the, the female roles are kind of based around the men that they love. Yeah, I, I think it's a valid complaint, but I think it's also, you know, does that mean he needs to get a co-writer to help him actually do something you know, that is outside of his comfort zone? And yet his brother Jonathan has written some very strong female parts in Westworld. But isn't that because, you know, Westworld is constructed as a writer's room situation? Yes, him and Lisa Joy drive it and they're the showrunners, but they'll have a number of uh, writers in that writer's room to help yeah, them do that. I hadn't made that connection, Deck, and now you say it. Yeah, absolutely right. Neil, back to the original question for you. What would you like to see him tackle next? Well, like to see him, but it would be interesting to see him, um, given all the crappy horror films that come out every single year, him tackle a proper horror film. You bastard. You I'm just not that I'd ever I want to, to see it. Um, and I thought oh. that you'd suggest it. So yeah, I, you're right. Oh, actually. And I was going to say... Now think um, of another one. No, 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 no. I, I will expand upon the point that you just said. I would like to see him tackle something along the lines of The Haunting, a haunted house tale, because you can play with time in those as well. And you can do all sorts of things. It's all about time and people and, and heads and thinking, memories and such like. You can do so much in horror with that, he says. Knowledgeably, he, he can definitely. He could definitely do an unreliable narrator with different characters having a different memory of a specific event. Yeah, that would be right up his street, wouldn't it? Let's take this into. I'd like to see him tackle the first couple of books of the Dark Tower. <sighs> God, yeah. Wow, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, well done. And do it properly. That's jumping time and dimensions yes. and all sorts mm. of things. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've had quite a long discussion on Mr. Nolan and a very informative one. Thank you very much, guys. So, Phil, what's next? What's your next next retrospective? I'm halfway through two, actually. I'm not sure which one's going to land first because I've kind of hit a hit a bump in both. So, I was doing Hayao Miyazaki uh, whilst I was on furlough. I was watching those with my kids specifically, and what I wanted to do was have a little blurb with their opinion after each film. I think we watched about four or five. We got stuck because they decided that there's way too many other things on Disney Plus and Dad was making watching films far too much mature. <laughs> um, so, so we're seven films from ending that. So I've got a kind of choice. I've got to make a choice there of whether I kind of try to sort of continue that on and sort of at a slower rate and get them to watch the rest with me or whether maybe I'll watch them on my own. And the other one that I moved to because I got stuck, I moved to Paul Thomas Anderson. So far with Paul Thomas Anderson, I've done, um, I've seen Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, and um, There Will Be Blood Again. I've, I've written those. And I've also, because I really like his music videos, I've actually watched every single music video that Paul Thomas Anderson's done, and I've included those. So that's all written so far. I've got five more films to watch for Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, and they're only tricky just because his films tend to be quite long. They're quite hardcore. And my wife, uh, about, you know, when the kids have gone to bed, isn't really in the mood to watch um, Punch Drunk Love or The Master. <laughs> so um, I'm trying to work around her and uh, do those. So they're the two that are in progress. 
problem is there's too many. I've got, so on my long list, I've got Michael Mann, James Cameron, David Fincher, Danny Boyle, Tim Burton, Stanley Kubrick and Martin Scorsese. And because exactly what Dex said, I thought, bloody hell, I really don't watch enough uh, films by women. And everything I've done so far has been about men. Is um, I was trying to think about what films I really like by women. And I thought of Catherine Bigelow. Um mm. And I was looking at Catherine Bigelow's sort of her films and there's about three or four that I've not seen, but there's also about five that I know I really, really like. So I thought she would be quite good to do. It's just, you know, it's just time. So having what about, the, the time to do the research and watch the films and write it up. What are your thoughts on Penny Marshall? I don't know because that completely draws a blank. What's she done? Okay, that's, so that's not that's not his style, Jeff. All right, big uh, big awakenings, League of Their Own, riding with boys in cars. Okay, yeah, I mean I've seen those films, but yeah, they don't excite me <laughs> per se. Okay, let's. Uh, I think we better draw a conclusion o- over that. There's more emotion in any one of those than any Chris oh, Nolan God, film. Right. <laughs> okay, it has been an absolute blast talking to you guys on this. So thank you very much. Just again for um, our listeners, where can they find this? Um, it's uh, philverbearblog.wordpress.com. Okay. Phil, thank you very much for joining us. Look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. Cheers. Thank Thanks very much. Thank you, Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Cheers guys. Bye. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening.